This is your host, Caitlin Cook, and welcome back to the Dead Kate Bounce Experience. This week's guest is Thomas Brazil. Tom is founder and CIO of 507 Capital, a firm that provides capital and insolvencies and bankruptcies globally. Mount Gox, Voyager, Celsius, Three Arrows Capital, Terra Luna, the list goes on. Since crypto's inception, these are some of the most highly publicized scandals in and around the crypto space. But what actually happened? Where did things go wrong? Most importantly, what were the results and how do we learn from these scenarios? Historically speaking, many leaders across the space have shied away from talking about these things. If we bring up these stories, will they scare newcomers away? Do we cross our fingers and hope that everyone will simply forget as the ecosystem continues to grow? Thoughts like this have led many to sweep these situations under the rug until the next inevitable headline comes. As for me, I wanna take a different approach. Why? Because if we don't address these topics, nothing changes. Nobody learns. It looks shady on the part of leaders and educators in the space and certainly doesn't instill confidence in those on the outside. In fact, these are some of the main instances that people point to as a reason for why they won't delve into the space. So in this episode, we're going to talk about it. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Tom. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency. All right, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I'm super excited about this one. We'll call it the FUD Buster episode. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> well, I, I mean, it. yeah, it's, it's perfect, right? So there's lots of FUD out there, fear, uncertainty, doubt for the people who don't know the acronyms here. But with blockchain, crypto, whatever you want to call it, it's an upcoming space, nascent tech, emerging industry. People are experimenting. We've clearly seen that. Things will fail. We've seen things fall apart. But if we don't talk about these things, if we don't learn from them, what's the point? I feel like we'll just keep seeing this cycle of things repeating themselves. So want to get into it, want to talk about the things that a lot of people just honestly are afraid to talk about and bring up again because they don't want people to hear about it and associate the space with it. I'm thinking about the Mt. Gox of the world, the Voyagers of the world, the Three Arrows Capital, lots of ways we could go with it. But you sort of fell ass backwards into crypto. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you got in and, you know, your sort of origin story, because I think it's super interesting and a really cool perspective for what we're going to talk about. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Very kind of you. And I totally love the fact that you're bridging the call. Yeah. Flood busters. I mean, it's, it's impossible for an industry to grow and not have, you know, hiccups along the way and, you know. So, I mean, it's something that, that always needs to be talked about. And I think if crypto is going to be mainstream, especially. So in crypto, you know, there's lots of counterparty risk. You have, I think we and I were talking just before we went on. It's like the financial system is being built in real time here, or, you know, reimagined in real time. And so there's a huge opportunity, but there's also a lot of risk. And mainly it has to do not necessarily with the protocols themselves so much as, I mean, we'll leave Luna aside, Terra Luna aside, but the... Uh, institutions that help you on and off ramps onto these things and uh you know self-custody is a real thing or whatever call it unbanking yourself is like a uh you know a serious commitment i mean you know for me i fell into it through Mac Cox. um 
know, my background is my parents were lawyers. My mom was a bankruptcy lawyer. I used to hang out at the bankruptcy court growing up. And when I first came across Mount Cox, I thought it was kind of interesting. And then as, as I bought a few claims, I was like, hmm, I really don't know what crypto is. I mean, I have the basic idea like, okay, non-governmental money. That's kind of cool. Uh, but I hadn't really done the del the deep dive on, you know, reading the white, just like philosophically understanding like on how deep you can go with Bitcoin, which is kind of like a, I won't use a curse word. I don't want to be de de demonetized, but it's quite a head scratch. You're kind of like, whoa, this is, is this real? I mean, if this is real, this is pretty deep and philosophical. So you go down the rabbit hole, you learn more. And then for myself, now I'm so, I guess I'm so into it that I like to be, add my unique uh, skill set to the industry and try to help out because I'm a big believer in, you know, you have to kind of make the future you want. And I think for this ecosystem, talking about flood busting is super important. So you can't just, just be a constant cheerleader. I mean, there's, there's issues that need to be dealt with regulatory issues, legal issues. Um, and I think some people's early adopters in crypto, um, especially if you were just a Bitcoin maxi, um, you were probably just like, Hey, this is not really what it's supposed to be. Like, I don't like regulation. I don't like CFI institutions, stuff like that. I don't have a problem with it because it helps it go mainstream. But then we got to have some rules of the road. And we've got to also fight for reasonable and good regulation and for um, even protection for asset owners. You know, that's one of the things that's come up in Voyager and Celsius, which is the current, you know, flavor of the month in terms of uh, restructuring. They're pub big in public. There are a lot of private things going on we're just deleveraging situations where companies will do restructurings. But, um, and so that's me, that's how I fell into crypto and, um, yeah. Love it. It's just so interesting. You, everyone always has such a different story with it, but I, I do want to ask, I mean, why distressed assets to begin with? Like what brought you to that space? What was the appeal? And then of course with crypto, we've mm -hmm. seen ample opportunity to capitalize on that from a business standpoint too, which if you want to cover that as well, I'm all ears. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I used to run a tiny hedge fund. It wasn't super successful uh, just as a, as a business because we just had a hard time scaling. I was way too young starting a fund. And, you know, people were like, hey, you know a lot about this distressed bankruptcy stuff. Like, you should focus on that. You know, no one's really doing that for us. So my clients, it was clients that were pushing me that way, uh, just listening to feedback of what they thought was a unique proposition that we could offer to them. And then from there, uh, the crypto was like, hey, well, no one really knows about crypto. Like, I remember the first time I was talking about Mt. Gox claims to someone. I've told the story before, but I don't know if you've heard it. But there, I met with a pretty well-known hedge fund. And the guy literally, like, slapped his leg and laughed and was like, oh, my God, you want me to buy Bitcoin? And I was like, no, I'm talking about, you know, buying claims in this bankruptcy. And we're buying very cheaply. And it could be the future. And he was just like. I think the next two or three times I called him, he was like, Bitcoin. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, okay. Well, good, good to chat. Um, so it got, it was quite dismissive at first. So I thought like, hey, this is something where I could spend some time and, and have a little bit of like, what's the phrase in like football, like open field, like, you know, sort of open field. So it was opportunistic on my part. And as I got into crypto, I was like, wow, this is, I mean, this is, I mean, like, I don't believe in all the stuff going on. And I am, I guess I'm naturally a skeptical person. Um, so I don't believe a lot of the projects will work. Um, but there's so much good stuff in here um, for the future of the world and humanity. Am I allowed to use words like that? So, so I'm a believer. I'm totally sucked in. 
Um, but of course there's a lot of froth and silliness that goes on and shenanigans. Um, and I wasn't sure the second part of the question, but that's how I kind of like decided to, I wouldn't say I only focus on it, but spend a ton of time on it is I figured there will be more cycles. There will be guys that get into trouble. And, you know, there has been a fair share. You had Malcox, the Cornica, Cryptopia, Quadriga, Gigawatt, Factum. I can't think of some other ones. I mean, you had Bitfinance, you had hacks where people did recovery tokens. Those were kind of interesting. Um, you've got news stories now today, like companies that are getting their lines pulled from their lenders and the crypto ecosystem, all the leverage is just coming out of the system. It's like oxygen being sucked out of a room. And so there are a lot of things going on. And so that's how I got sort of sucked into this space. And I don't know that many people that focus on this. Um, I don't think many. Um, because there's a lot of le novel legal questions that have to be answered when you do any sort of restructurings or distressed when it comes to crypto. Yeah. I mean, I was saying this before we started recording. I don't think I know anyone that's doing what you're doing whatsoever, which makes this a lot more interesting. But I think you have a really unique vantage point to talk about a lot of this stuff. Obviously, we're involved back with Mt. Gox and like you've seen all of this sort of unfold since. So having that context is really valuable. I want to have a bit of like a, a story time, right? Because again, most people won't approach these subjects because they think it's off-putting to new people that are hesitant about the space, wanting to get started. For me, I think kind of won't get on my soapbox here, but how do you how do you not approach these things? These are the difficult questions that you need to answer when people yeah. are thinking about how to how to even think about the risks associated with the space if they want to get involved. Well, it's interesting you say that because you know, I'll hear stuff from time to time. And I'm just like, who told you that? Like, that is so wrong. I'm like, that's actual FUD. You know, like <laughs> I was telling you a story of how somebody was remarking because crypto had, you know, let's just, I'm saying crypto, but I know I'm really talking about Bitcoin, but you say the top 10 sort of in general, the whole market was like going like this, uh, what last year, uh, whenever, when we got 50, $60,000 Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, when it came sort of crashing down and Terra Luna happened, I was at dinner with someone and she, oh, sorry, my dog's here. Um, they were telling me how, uh, how could you invest in crypto? Like the blockchain got hacked. Like that's what happened. And that's why Terra Luna was like a whole mess because they hacked the blockchain so they can hack any blockchain. blockchain. And I was like, sorry, what? Like who told you that? <laughs> and so I think when you make something taboo, it's sort of then real FUD gets in because it's just like, we just need to talk through these things and talk about what's real and what's not, you know, is counterparty risk when you're working with on and off ramps into crypto real 100%. So you need to think about it and how to manage it. You know, like that's why there are things like people that offer custody that have a very high level of security and, you know, things like Casa. I just met the guys at Casa. They do like a self custody, but it has like five points of failure and they have a backup key. Like this is stuff that needs to be talked about. There are probably some interesting businesses to build in this space. But if you're a traditional investor coming in the space and you know this, so I'm like preaching to the choir here, but you have to talk about counterparty risk and understand it. It's something I assume that like back in the day in the 1900s, people talked about counterparty risk and they were doing securities transactions. Now we've kind of ironed that all out. And, you know, I mean, probably not, you know, even, even sooner than that counterparty risk. And, and now with derivative, derivative guys, guys that work in derivatives, they know about counterparty risk and it's time for, you know, and it's not, it's not that it, it, it but it's, it's always a time to think about, but in crypto, these are things that still need to be very ironed out. You know, there's no national exchanges with uh, like pools to make people whole. 
if, uh, if uh, you know, brokers go down and things like that. And there's no like SIPA insurance and FDIC insurance. So this is all stuff that like needs to be talked about and thought through as an investor. That's why the opportunity exists, but it has to be talked about. Can't just be swept under the rug and considered FUD whenever you bring it up. Exactly. Like these are real things that need to be considered. And the, the biggest headlines that you hear about are just prime examples of why you need to be focusing on these things when you're doing your research and getting involved. So maybe let's start there. I guess for, you know, this is more for people just getting started. And I think most people coming from traditional finance understand the idea of counterparty risk in general, right? At least I'd hope so. But let's talk about counterparty risk within crypto and the details that need to be ironed out there for those who are kind of trying to wrap their head around it. I don't know what your thoughts are. I'll just get mine. So, (laughs) and I'd love to get yours actually, because, you know, these C5 platforms, like their balance sheets can be opaque. And you don't have FDIC insurance. You don't have SIPA, SIPA insurance uh, for brokers and stuff like that. And in the UK and other places, they have other kind of insurance and sort of like w- ways of dealing with, um, um, you know, brokers and things like that, like being adequately capitalized and you know being reviewed by either some sort of supervisors um, regulatory regime in that in that system. And crypto doesn't really have that, so I'm sure that that'll be changing in the future, frankly. And I think there'll be regulation around that. And I think that's probably a good thing. Um, so something to think about. So whenever you're buying, like wh- wh- who is your custody? Is it being custody with a firm? What do you know about the balance sheet of that firm? Getting sucked. I think the biggest thing in Voyager and Celsius is guys really getting sucked into yield products, um, you know, chasing yield. They're, they're like, hey, it'd be great to own ETH, but it'd be, or Ether, it'd be great to own Ether, but it'd also be great to own Ether and get 6%. So like a lot of people got sucked into these trades and, you know, this is like as old as history, as old as like finance, you know, people probably getting sucked into trades where they can make a little bit of income, like the swan song of, of or this, whatever, so this, yeah, whatever, the siren song, sorry, of uh, not free money, but, but you know, just kind of easy money. And so those are things you have to watch out for whatever provider you're working for. I mean, I think if you do a decent amount of research, you can get extremely credible counterparty with. Um, and I think, you know, my big gripe sometimes with traditional finance people, Caitlin, is I'll hear people that are just like, oh, it's also risky. I can't touch that, you know, for somebody else to do. And I'm like, you know, it's with just a little bit of due diligence, you know, well, full due diligence, but with, a, you know, some time spent on this, you can easily work around the system and manage exposure, um, just like anything, if you were giving money to managers or something as an investment strategy, like you would do due diligence on them and then even counterparty risk about how they custody your assets and things like that. And then you wouldn't put all your money with one because then, you know, the only free lunch in investing is diversification, right? And that's true with counterparty risk. A lot of times you're dealing with counterparty risk by diversifying your counterparties. It's not, you can't get rid of the fact that if you have a supplier who gives you a good and it's very critical to what you do. Well, maybe you should be diversifying your supply chain just for just for good good measure. Um, so same thing in crypto, you know. And if you're thinking of either TradFi or even people that are full into crypto, that's something they need to not only worry about but just constantly think about because the ecosystem is evolving and it's still very nascent. Yeah. So, I mean, so many points there, right? I do think that 
Yeah. Oftentimes the, the risk component of it is used as a cop-out for people who want to push off adopting the space, learning about it because it seems overwhelming or they, you know, think that it's a Ponzi or whatever, whatever the comment of the week is, it seems like, seems like it's always changing, but what's your process for assessing potential new investments? Like what is the due diligence process look like for you in a space where there are thousands of opportunities, people building constantly headlines flying everywhere how do you stay focused and what do you look for? So I do it this, I, I come at it a different way, which is I know a ton of people in the venture capital. This is not investment advice. This is, you know, opinions expressed here are solely mine. Uh, but I would say that there are a whole plethora of venture capitalist type people that are making venture capital deals. Um, there are people that do venture capital deals and they focus even on a subset, whether it's uh, NFTs or exchanges and like financial services or, um, you know, just, just different sectors. So those guys, their cost of capital is much lower than ours in the sense of they might be writing a check at a $40 million valuation on a company that they know could be a zero or they know it could be a 50X and that's their business and that's what they do. And I think as a strategy, if you know what you're doing and you have deal flow, that's probably interesting. We're not quite as connected as those guys and we don't write checks like that. Usually we're frankly more credit focused. So I like to think that um, it's unique, our approach, because we can even work in conjunction with those VCs, whether it's venture capitalists or family offices, or even like, you know, the big institutional players like Galaxies and the Genesis and uh, whatever, DCG, like these guys have portfolio companies, they might need credit, they have some credit, but they need stretch credit, and they can't get involved, things like that, where we're kind of in an interesting uh, space of being on the credit side, because the crypto credit markets, um, I know there's DeFi, but when it comes to actually like running the, uh, the call it the companies that help enable adoption, uh, some of those guys have a tough time getting credit. You know, traditional banks won't touch them. Um, and especially when you get pullbacks like this, there are only a few really handful of big firms that, that sort of, they're not kingmakers, but they, you know, they, they can't underwrite everything, you know? And so, and so they can't get, they can't, they can't get involved in the businesses on that. So, so we differentiate this since we're more credit focused and, um, and we, we try to be helpful to the ecosystem and I'll tell people straight up like, Hey, this isn't appropriate for us. You should really try to call these five people and see if they can help you. And that's the best thing to do for us or for myself. You ask my approach. It's I lead with, let me see if I can add value. And if I can great. And if you need our capital as part of that, fantastic. Maybe we could talk about something, but if not, that's great, man. Just, you know, remember the little people, you know, and like call us if you need something, or if you have a friend who's, who needs help with something. So that's kind of, we, and the due diligence in terms of actually, you know, papering deals, you know, security interest and stuff like that in crypto are kind of a nascent thing. They have like the, Caitlin, you're familiar with like the uniform commercial code updates that are like pushing through. That stuff's great. It needs to be adopted in all the 50 states. Um, I think like Digital Chamber of Commerce and people like that that have been pushing the um, the adoption of the UCC. Like people think, oh, we don't want like why crypto? Why are we talking about this? Because when you go to court as a crypto asset owner, you're gonna want to have good protections. And to be widely adopted, like we have to. There's something wrong with starting outside the system and then working our way in. But to be mainstream, like these things are important, and they're important for asset owners of crypto. Um, but in terms of papering, I mean, you paper it just like you would paper uh, any kind of financial transaction. 
I mean, when we do stuff, when it, I think, I think what the only thing I would say is when it comes to custody, you know, you have to really have strong protocols in place and you can work with, you know, legitimate uh, high-end firms who uh, help you secure your crypto for doing a transaction, things like that. And I don't want to name companies because you, you, Kayla, you probably know these firms, but they're legitimate providers that can help you with the, the quote unquote, touching the crypto part of any transaction you're working on. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at. I mean, we just use the top tier firms that everybody can use. Yeah. I mean, the options are there, right? It's more of just knowing where to go. Um, but I do want to get into the sort of storytelling part of this, just because I think you can add a lot of value around context of what happened with some of these scenarios that have gone wrong. A lot of the headlines that we've seen, and we'll start at the beginning, um, or at least for your beginnings in crypto with Mt. Gox. I was uh, mm-hmm. 14 at the time. So when dinosaurs roamed the earth back in 2012, <laughs> um, it's you probably one of the biggest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a, just a little one at the time, but that's probably one of the biggest headlines that when I've spoken with, you know, traditional financial participants about crypto, that's one of the biggest situations that they point to. Oh, well, Mt. Gox. Mm. It's just one of the biggest stories out there in the space that is constantly brought up. But I'm not really confident that a lot of people actually know what happened. So enlighten Mm. us. What was the situation? How did it get to where it was? And what what was sort of the outcomes from it? Did anything change after all of this went down? Yeah, Mt. Gox is unfortunate. Nothing really happened like in terms of protections for crypto asset owners post Mt. Gox. Um, although Mt. Gox isn't totally over. So I guess you could say it's a little bit in the back of people's mind. Uh, so, so Mt. Gox was interesting. I guess it was such a shock to the system because it was like 70 or 80% of the volume of traded Bitcoin. It probably was less because my local Bitcoin, I don't think anyone was probably keeping good statistics on it. But you know what, my local Bitcoin, or you're too young for that, where people like would go to coffee shops and like buy Bitcoin. And like, you're like, I don't know how they even did it. It's like a total trust. It's like real trust. I mean, they're like, okay, send me, send it to my wallet. We're going to stay, I'm going to hold your arm while you send it and I'll give you the cat. I don't know how people did it. Um, but uh um, I guess you could have used like an escrow service for a law firm. I'm sure so back in the day, some lawyers did that. But um, when you know, so it was a big thing when it happened. And also, you know, there were a lot of missing Bitcoin. I mean, the issue with uh, Voyager and Celsius now is they blew holes in their balance sheet by not managing the risk of their loan portfolios well enough. Okay, that's a little different than you know just waking up and they're like. Oh, by the way, like three fourths of the Bitcoin isn't here, you know, or actually in Mt. Gox's case, it was, yeah, something like three fourths. They, they found 200,000 in a cold wallet. Um, so that's what I was going to ask, Tom, so then, like, yeah, what was the most basic, the most basic sense of it? What actually happened? You know, you heard a lot of people that, you know, completely lost their Bitcoin from this situation. Maybe they got it back eventually. Maybe they're still working on it. Like you said, not everything's done. Right. But like logistically speaking, what, what what happened? What happened that led to that? Yeah, logistically. Yeah, what happened? That's a good question. Uh, there's a journalist who's working on like a retro, like this big like investigative journalist piece on this. And, uh, you know, it's fun to sort of speculate about. I think basically what would happen is Bitcoin was not a thing, right? It was, it was, it was just like backwater 
and, you know, uh, Mt. Gox technically stands for like magic, the gathering trading cards or something. Um, and so it was people trading kind of collectibles. And then from there, they started trading Bitcoin or maybe they were making payments in Bitcoin. They started trading Bitcoin and then it, Bitcoin was still kind of a thing, but not like a huge thing. And so they didn't have security protocols. They didn't understand that like they were a honeypot that could be attacked and, you know, they were, there was known that there was missing Bitcoin, but they thought that, hey, if we just make enough money trading on the volume, we can replace the Bitcoin. But then as Bitcoin went up, they were like, oh, wow, this hole is getting bigger because Bitcoin is going up and we owe this amount of Bitcoin. So I think it was just it was like guys that did, never expected it to blow up the way it did and, uh, in terms of, you know, interest in, in crypto, in Bitcoin. And they were just sort of, unsuitable for for like running this there was no thought there was no capital to be able to set up security protocols and so there was always like basically hackers that had access and they were sort of leaking out funds and they could never really find out how they were stealing the funds people say it was an inside job i i doubt it i think that it was um likely that there was just always a security hack and they just sat on it and tried to figure out how to fix it. Meanwhile, I kept running the business. So that's what happened. And so there was supposed to be 800, 850,000 Bitcoin, which is a ton of Bitcoin, right? Uh, but when they actually filed for administration, they couldn't, they didn't have any, they had like a few, like a few thousand Bitcoin. And then they found 200,000 Bitcoin, like in a cold storage wallet. So they basically had like 25% of the Bitcoin they said they had. Um, and then, you know, the Japanese filed for administration in Japan, and it's taken a really, really long time because A, it's crypto and it's Japan. Um, and the big argument was whether who gets the uplift in value. So in 2018, Bitcoin, I believe, is it like a few thousand dollars? No, is it like basically like five to 10 grand? And so if you do the math, they only have 25% of the crypto but remember, crypto is now like 10x from when it went bankrupt. When it went bankrupt, crypto is at like $400. I'm using Bitcoin here. I don't mean this to, to like interchangeable and sort of conflate them. But Bitcoin is at 400 now. It's at 4,000. So now you're 10x up and you have 25%. So if you only have 25%, but you make a 10x on that 25%, that's over 100% repay of your original 400. So technically, you're kind of in the money in the fiat sense, not in the crypto sense, but in the fiat sense. And so there, there, then there became a big argument in 2018, who should get the uplift? Should it go to the claimants or should it go back to the equity holders? Well, the equity holder was in jail at the time. <laughs> uh, he had tr been tried, not necessarily for stealing the Bitcoin, but I think he got tried for like cyber crimes, uh, which is because he basically set up a bot called the Willy bot to basically trade against customer accounts to try to make back Bitcoin to fill the hole. I know, crazy. Can't make it up. They're gonna make a movie about it one day, um, and yeah, that's. And then the recovery is basically the same. They sold a bit of crypto, so the recovery is like twenty cents on the dollar. But of course, twenty cents on the crypto dollar, and crypto now is at twenty grand. Let's just use twenty grand. So that's a huge move. So everybody that stayed in still made like a ten x or fifteen x or something. Man, I feel like there's a lot to that story too, and it's still going right. So where are we at Force with that total. now in terms of like? getting all of that buttoned up. I feel like it's just a slow crawl. Yeah. So, 2012. Yeah. No joke. Right. I know. Right. Crazy. 2014 is when they filed. So yeah, to that, they're supposed to, I mean, the plan was confirmed and they should pay out soon, but what does soon mean? I think that they're going to start doing 
this is what I hear from sources is that the early payouts will be in like January, February of next year. And then the final payouts, which is where we are, because the, the early payouts were for people that do have small claims or want an early payout, but you give up some of your recovery if you take an early payout. Um, if you do final payouts, it's probably the end of next year, not this year, but next year, or even going into 2024. So it's going to take a while. Also, like people shouldn't, there's FUD around like the distribution of, of, of the crypto here. I'd love to like break it down some way. Like this would be like a totally different podcast, but there's 200,000 Bitcoin that are coming on the market or not really about 141,000 Bitcoin. But of that 141, there are a number of big blocks of that that are not going to come online. One of them is Bitcoinico. One of them is uh, like Fortress that bought a bunch of claims. There are big blocks of that 141 that will not come online when there's a distribution. Um, and most of the guys, they're going to be sitting on such a low tax basis that what it's really going to affect probably is the lending market for Bitcoin. It's just going to bring down that like yield you can earn um, because there's going to be a lot of new crypto and the guys are going to want to sell and hit, get taxes. They're going to want to reapothecate or whatever the phrase would be and earn interest on it without generating the tax. That's what they're going to want to do. Yeah, I am um, trying to think of even like what to say to that. And I can't just because it's, it's a lot going on, but transitioning to... <laughs> <laughs> just sure. too much to unpack there. It could be another episode, I think. And maybe, maybe it will be, um, but transitioning to today. So you said 2014 with filing and everything It's 2022 still going on. But in addition to that, it's not just Ben Mount Gox. We've seen Celsius, Voyager, Terra Luna. How were those situations, the headlines that we've seen in the past year, past two years, how are those situations different and where did things go wrong as opposed to what we saw with Mount Gox? Yeah, Mt. Gox, it was so early. There was no laws, no rules, no nothing. I mean, it was really kind of a slap together company because of the fact that they didn't know the crypto was going to become a thing. And now, of course, now fast forward and crypto is kind of mainstreamish, mainstreamish. Um, and so for Celsius and Voyager, it's a little different. There are a lot of, I don't call them mom and pop investors, but a lot of just individual investors that were trying to get interested in crypto. They like the yields. People were like, oh, look at this yield. I don't earn anything in my interest rate and my regular savings account. Boy, if I could make 8%, that'd be amazing. 10%, that'd be amazing. So they got sort of sucked into that. Um, so there are a lot of people that are just, I want to call them normal people that are not necessarily running portfolios. They don't, they don't even own stocks. They basically own index funds and then they have crypto, which is kind of like, anyway. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's, 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 I guess a little disheartening that some of them got sucked into this and this is like their first foray into crypto. So there's a lot more like people with life savings, people with college funds, stuff you hear, like people that their business they were using as their banking account or for a savings account for their business and for their employees bonuses and stuff that you're just like, Oh my God. So it's gotten more mainstream and it's unfortunate that it's so that, so that's different. Um, also, what's different is these are U.S. bankruptcy processes or you know Chapter 11s in the states. So the process will be a lot faster, a lot more transparent, and we'll probably get a lot more case law that will be useful not only for insolvencies but also for general uh, crypto litigations and 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 legal uh, fights. And um, what else? And I think there'll be a lot more eyeballs on what happens and what kind of regulations we need to put these CFI institutions through. I mean, 
was was Mt. Gox a CFI institution? I don't know. Yeah, I guess it was because you were buying it and holding the crypto there. But these are like legit CFI. I mean, guys have like 15 different. I got to close the door because someone's decided to mow their own. Um, but they've got like, you know, 15, 25 different cryptos in their account. And that's cool. But there isn't really a lot of regulation around what these things are, what they're, what they should how they should be reg regulated, what kind of products they should be able to offer to their customers in different states, different countries. So I think there's going to be a lot more regulation that come out of these because, you know, the processes are very in the press. First, Mt. Gox was going on in Japan and crypto was this weird magic internet money that no one knew what it was. And, you know, it was something either computer geeks or you know, like money launderers were into. It was, it was sort of dismissed as like, hold on, I'm going to close this while we talk. It, it was sort of dismissed as like not a thing, you know, that anybody legitimate would be into. Um, and it's still get there's some of that. There's some of that FUD that still goes on. But um, anyway, does that answer your question? So I think there'll be a lot more regulation, a lot more eyeballs in this. Yeah. Um, and you, you made a lot of good points there too. I think one is the media and how that's even changed in the last, five to seven years, right? Like headlines are constant. Crypto is always in the headlines. It's just like literally is one of the the only constants that we see is that there's always something in the headlines having to do with crypto. Uh, and these are certainly things that would make the news. That news takes off. It gets circulated everywhere. It's everything that people are talking about just nonstop. Also though, right. with crypto becoming more mainstream, the, the people that you're seeing be impacted, it is a lot more of the mom and pop types that are just getting started. They see the yield that's attractive. The numbers are really, really high versus what you see in traditional markets in a lot of situations. And I think that has a tendency to suck people in without doing proper due diligence, which um, maybe if we want to peel back kind of the onion a little bit more on what happened with Celsius and Voyager, um, because to your ah, point, sure. that's going to be in the headlines quite a bit. Um, it, I think there's a, a lot to unpack on that. <laughs> So I should say there's like, there's a whole continuum of people when it comes to their views on this. And I'll try to keep mine as like moderate as possible. Like, I don't want to say there are people that say, oh, these are Ponzi schemes and they were doing stuff they shouldn't have done and they stole our money. That's like one camp. And then the other camp is like, this is a bank run. And, you know, this is because of Fudsters trying to kill these companies and for their own profit or own benefit. And like, you know, you can, you know, you can take facts and kind of meld the story any way you want. But basically, uh, these were kind of early banking institutions within crypto that didn't have a lot of regulation. They were trying to grow. They were trying to grow. They were trying to grow because they, they themselves wanted to enrich themselves owning a big company, but also because they probably believed in crypto adoption. Um, but, you know, financial firms getting over their skis by blowing up on a loan book is a story as old as time. There are millions of, you know, throughout financial history, you know, Solomon Brothers. I mean, that was like more regulatory. But, you know, guys in the financial crisis, RTC, you know, like Resolution Trust Corporation and banks, uh, savings and loans, getting over their skis on loans in the 80s. But this is something that is not new. Um, but basically, these guys, you sign up, you get a, you, you get an account it's on your app. You can add, you know, whatever fiat. I, I'm pretty sure you can add fiat, but I think for Voyager, you couldn't add, no, for Voyager, I think you could add fiat and then buy crypto. I think with Celsius, you had to sort of buy some stable coin and then go on to their app, I think. Um, and 
from there, you could move it around, you know, get yield from their yield product. And people were using it as a savings account. Some people had debit cards, I think, in some jurisdictions, so they're using it like a bank account. And so think about it just like your Chase account on your phone, right? You've got Chase, you have a debit card, you, you swipe your phone, you know, you've tapped your phone to pay for things. It was just like that, but instead of using, uh, instead of using your, you know, dollars, you were using uh, stable coins, and you were able to move it around quickly, and and also make higher yields. So that's how people got sucked in, and and I think these are great potential products, and I don't have a problem with it. I just, it's unfortunate that um, there probably weren't a little a, a bit more rules for the road. I mean, to push back from the other perspective it's not like the regulators were on top of any of this stuff. I mean, the regulators basically send out like cryptic messages around what they're going to regulate and how they're going to regulate it. And, you know, I think if you're, if you're trying to grow at all costs and the regulator is not saying no, well then people have a tendency, you know, to go to the lowest common denominator of like what they'll push for. So that's the problem with some of these institutions. And look, if you were using these products and then every periodically taking stuff off, to keep in what would you know in crypto world cold storage or just to diversify so you had coinbase and you have kraken and you have voyager and celsius and you use five different platforms and then two of the five go under because of the issues like that's not ideal but it's clearly a little better strategy than having you know one c5 and also like i mean i don't know what your thoughts are on this you know for me i think it if you have if you have a crypto portfolio within your general portfolio, you should probably have like some decent percentage that's just totally offline um, in like a self custody type approach, and then you should have a decent percentage that's online, right? That you're using whether it's you're using your Coinbase or you're using your FTX account, whatever jurisdiction you can open an account and live in. And uh, of course, there's more noise here. Sorry. And uh, oh, never mind. And um, I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on like mitigating? I feel like it's just like you buy a stock portfolio. You want diversification. You want to be thinking of the risk of the underlying and it's judgment and, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still early days, right? Everyone always says it's so early, but to your point, diversifying, like not only the assets that you own or the projects and protocols that you're involved with, it's not just that. It's also where are you storing your assets? Are you putting all of your eggs in one basket? Are they in cold storage? Are you using a software wallet? Are you using a centralized entity? And there are risks associated with all of those things and they're unique to the solution. So the more that you kind of disperse that risk and spread it out to your point, like you're, you're better off that way. It's like investing too. Don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket ever because even if you have the utmost confidence in wherever your assets are being stored or you know the project that you're investing in, there's just way too much risk in only using one solution or one investment. And even if your conviction's high, that doesn't mean that you should go all in, um, which I think people tend to forget when we're seeing incredibly attractive yields or we're seeing opportunities that right. seem like a home run or easy money. And it's, it's very simple to get caught up in. And we've seen people do that time and time again. Well, I love to always have the Michael Mobison, like it's not a quote, but like a study that was done and he's great at like um, kind of synthesizing a lot of that behavioral finance stuff. And he says like, the more time you spend in something, the higher your confidence gets, but actually your predictive ability isn't increasing. So it's like predictive ability is kind of like going like this in the first and then sort of flattens that. And then, but like your confidence is like this, like all the way up, you know? So it's like, 
So, so even if you're like super bullish on crypto as an asset class, um, whether it's a big, you're a big coin maxi or you just like the main projects and protocols, or you're just like really into, you know, gaming or NFTs, you still have to think about like, okay, like how am I accessing this? Like, will I be right, but wrong because I got tripped up on counterparty risk and what am I doing? Not necessarily to hundred percent insulate myself, but just in a like draconian situation, like in the market, like are some of these firms I'm connecting with, are my at least diversified and have a good idea about what might be riskier than others. So just like you would with a, yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, the counterparty, especially, right. And the storage part is just so critical. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. And, you know, it's, it's not this, it's not a trivial decision to make. And it's something that people should think about a lot more than they do. Um, even with, you know, more centralized solutions, which are familiar to people that are just getting started. It looks like a regular sort of brokerage account. Right. You, It seems familiar. It seems very trustworthy, but always do your due diligence. That's like, I can't emphasize that enough, but also when I talk about that on no, the investment side too, okay. right? Just because I, I think of Terra Luna and maybe that's sort of the last one we cover because that brings us more to like today uh, in terms of due diligence, not only around you know, the counterparties that you're working with are like, where are you putting your money, but also the technology and how it actually works. So a Bitcoin mm. versus a stable coin versus an algorithmic stable coin and taking the time to do the research on what could go wrong there, because we very clearly saw that play out with Terra Luna more recently. You know, the funny thing about Terra Luna, I had so many people ask me about Terra Luna. I was like, I don't really understand the stuff like well enough. I like, cause I was like listening and like, I think I read some of the white paper and then I was kind of like following the summaries of what it was. And I was like, huh? Okay. I mean, I don't totally understand how this works and boy, am I glad that I didn't tell anybody like, yeah, this is great. It's better than sliced bread. Um, because you would have people who were like, it's just, they they view like price as a signal and, uh, Mike Yusko who, I'm agnostic on Mark Yusko, but uh, he does say that like price is a liar, which I think is always a great thing to remember. Like you can't just use price as an indicator of whether something's a good idea or not, because that'll come back around. I mean, I can't remember. It wasn't, it wasn't Luna, but it must've been Terra that was like to the moon and then just total burnout. And it didn't totally make a lot of sense to me doing me. That doesn't mean I like knew that it was going to blow up. It's just, you know, you can miss stuff. I just think, if you spend enough time understanding the philosophy and then maybe you have someone helping you with the technical stuff or your manager you like, or a few managers, and then from the other side, from a counterparty risk, like that's not so hard for you to underwrite. Uh, if you just general finance accounting background, like just thinking about like, okay, well, I don't, I want to split this into four accounts or I want to split this into two accounts or five accounts. And I want to have some offline and some online. Um, very similar to you think of just like managing the portfolio. You don't need to be like a technical expert. And I don't think you're going to be able to get there on, um, on a lot of crypto projects. I mean, honestly, even for myself, like I read some of the white papers of what some of the structures people want to do. And I'm like, huh, like, okay. Like I have to trust you and kind of go by like the idea of the analogy of what you're explaining. Cause I don't really understand how this new consensus mechanism you want to use for this new stable coin wants how, how it works. So it's, some of it will be beyond ability to uh, to totally due diligence. But if you're doing it, like if you're like, okay, I like the idea, I get it, I like the team. Okay, I put some small percentage in, 
right? Like sometimes you can control risk just by position sizing. And that's probably more important than like, I'm now a PhD in like elliptic curve geometry. And I can explain exactly how this uh, technical, this thing will be technically beneficial, you know? Because that's hard. Can't be an expert in everything. You can't. And I also think that the term crypto expert is an oxymoron at this point, just because so much is being built and it's it's growing so quickly that there's no way to possibly have deep subject matter expertise on it all. But like even with traditional investments, I might not be an emerging markets expert or an expert in commodities. But if you're trying to think of how to diversify, right, to your point, position sizing is an easy way to control that as well with just the simple totally. idea of not putting all of your eggs in one basket. It always goes back to well, that simple risk system. management. Yeah. Yeah. Simple risk management strategies. You know, the, what, what is it like? Uh, um, yeah. I don't know. There's like Cliff Asness. So I quote this guy all the time, but he's a famous <laughs> quant. And he likes to say like, we all know what we're supposed to do to, to like lose weight. It's sort of like eat less, move more. And his view on uh, investing is like, we all kind of know what to do. We try to make it more complicated, which is like, what does he say? He says like, try to, something like, like uh, spin less and diversify more, meaning like try to watch out for fees. And he's talking about general finance, like watch out for fees. And basically you should always kind of probably be more diversified than you are. This is like the only two like obvious things. And yet people sort of forget them. Um, one thing I noticed in crypto sometimes I don't like is I once had a friend, I'll give an anecdote, but it's a general idea. He didn't want the responsibility of figuring it out. So he gave it to a guy and he asked me about this guy. This is a little while ago. And he's just a friend. And I was like, Hey dude, like, I don't know who this person is. Like he doesn't, what he's saying doesn't seem to add up just in my general view. He was sort of promising some ridiculous, like, Oh, I can do crypto, but I can do it a supercharge. So I can make like 300%. And I was like, yeah, I'd just be very careful of, of, you know, kind of like I'm going to get you rich quick, you know, sort of schemes. And my friend really fell for it and sent the guy money. And the guy ended up being a fraudster and just like ran off with his money. And uh, it was sad because I had just told him, like, I, was, I looked at the old email. I didn't have the heart to send it to my friend. But it just says, like, dude, you should just go on if you want to get into this, like go on to Coinbase and buy it yourself. Like you don't need me. You don't need anybody. That's the whole point. <laughs> and so try to get into it philosophically. And then once you figure that out, like baby steps in, you know, it's my always thoughts for people. It's just like baby steps into stuff. And then maybe you decide it's not for you. Or maybe you said like, wow, this is actually really cool. There's so much innovation going on. I want to be part of it even more, but just start slower. I know it's, you know, Everyone wants to get rich quick uh, kind of scene, but doesn't want to put in the work to, to get rich quick or to get rich, uh, maybe not quickly, but um, definitely takes a lot of work and also like the self-control and the, you know, not going too in on any one idea and getting in over your skis. And there's, there's a lot of it. And well, there could be a whole discussion around like the behavioral side of it, because that's everything. And we've seen people right? get caught up in oh, that time I, and time can, again. Can I say one point on this? Let me say one more point on this is, I and people that are that are into like uh not cryptography but they they talk about like technical hacks and stuff like that and how you're gonna get and I remember it was like maybe an FBI agent or someone was saying this somewhere on like a YouTube video like people think they're gonna get hacked all the time it's like no 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 they don't hack your computer 
they like hack your mind. Like most of the thefts and then sort of things are done via just like social proof and stuff like that. Like, Oh, you went to this school, you know, John, I know John. Oh, you know, it's so funny. And then all of a sudden you've sent someone 10,000 bucks for some investment that's bogus or something like you're much more. And, and even with the way the CFI guys position themselves, like that was one of the really kind of, I think aggressive things that was done in Celsius is the guy really got you revved up about not being part of the banking system and how you got to unbank yourself or you got to, you know, banks are evil. And that rhetoric kind of fires up the base of people that want more and better institutions than we have now. And I am too. The problem is then he makes a logical leap and says, so send me your money, <laughs> you know? And that's the part where you got to be a little bit like, oh, okay, I totally believe the premise, but now there's this logical leap that this is the way I'm going to capitalize on it. And that's the thing you got to be careful in. It's like, there's a Seth Klarman quote here, Caitlin, you're, you're way too young to know who, <laughs> it, you know, Seth Klarman, I'm sure maybe Robert, you know, I'm sure Bobby has been telling you all about him, but um, let's see. But uh, he says, the thing about doing macro is you have like three layers of potential mistakes. You have the first layer is a theme that works. Then you have to take that theme and so you have to figure out how the world works. And you take that and you make a theme. And then you take the theme and then you find individual companies to invest in. And his point is like at each point in that chain, you can make a mistake. And if you make a mistake on either one of them, the investment won't work. And so his view is you have to be very careful with these thematic and like macro calls because you have to be right about how the world turns out. And, and in your theme, you have to be right about the way the theme works. And then you got to kind of figure out, you know, you got the companies actually benefit. The same thing is true somewhat in crypto. Like let's say crypto is the future and, and uh, our new, our financial system will be, our new financial system will be more stateless, more, more sovereignty for the individual. And there'll be this beautiful web 3.0 ecosystem as opposed to a bunch of monopolies that we have now. Um, so now I've just stated like a theme or premise, but then to capture it, you have to find the, individual protocols that you like um and then there's another player i guess in crypto which is counterparties you have to make sure that you you don't lose out on the benefit of being right about i'm making it up you're into ada you're you're into Chainlink or something or you're into you know the new merge so you're really into ethereum you have to be careful that if you buy you, you buy into the premise and you go buy it, but you, you actually get that return and it doesn't get on a C5 institution where you have issues or you haven't really properly thought through the security of your crypto. I'll be quiet. No, I, I love that. Um, rant away. But I, I do want to wrap up because I think we could talk about many things um, for a lot longer than this. I'm not sure. Um, maybe we'll have you back to do that because why not? But I always ask the same questions towards the end and there are kind of more big picture questions here point about just talking about macro, but sure. if crypto is the future, I'm thinking best case, sort of quote unquote, worst case here. If crypto is the future, what is mm -hmm. the primary reason for its success? And on the flip side, if we see crypto utterly blow up, utterly fail, not ever reach the potential that a lot of the people in the space think that it should, what would the primary reason for that be? Regulation. Um, you know, so, and I say regulation, meaning that the people in the ecosystem are such bad actors that the governments around the world are saying, no, like we're not allowing this. 
And I think the threat of, I wouldn't say threat, but they say, Hey, you know, maybe we should digitize currencies. Um, um, but we're not, we're not, we don't like the idea of non, non-state, non-sovereign. That's the biggest risk in my mind. And there's probabilities weighted to all this. The best person to listen to here, I want to think about like crypto in my mind, I wish it would be more public. He's sort of gone into, I don't know where, I don't know, sort of, but he's a guy named Winces Caceres and he's amazing. When you hear him talk about crypto, I mean, what was the first part of the question? What will make it successful? Yep. Hmm. I mean, I think it's inexorable. I think the genie is out of the bottle. I am like, the genie's out of the bottle. You're not putting it back. And whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was, God bless him. Such a great idea. Such a powerful idea of having separating, you know, you know, separating government and money. Just you separate a church and state. I mean, that's super powerful idea. And you know, ideas are, I guess, the most valuable thing in the world. This was amazing in the way it was structured. Um, so I'm a, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a maxi, but but I do believe that Bitcoin is here and there's no putting it back. And I think there is a probability that gets so regulated um, because this is why I'm so vocal now, I guess, in the industry is we need to be our own, Don't we won't want to be our own worst enemy um, by having people in centralized authority, right? Like governments and presidents and things like that saying like, actually this Bitcoin thing or this crypto thing is really bad. We got to regulate this to its death. And um, I think that that's, that's the probability that's in the cards. Um, and I think the threat of regulation is probably the biggest thing. Um, it also could, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So to me, that's the biggest risk. Um, and I don't, I don't know. It's not like it can be answered. But I do think if you're in the crypto ecosystem uh, or even considering it, you know, try, try reading up on the philosophy of just like why we'd want these things. I think, I think it's good. I think it's good. I think Web3, I love all the Web3.0 uh, projects. Some of them will be successful and I assume a, a number of them won't. Um, but I think it could be really great for the future of humanity. Uh, but the, the risks are regulatory. And um, it's not it's not a sure thing that uh, governments are going to go down, like in terms of like letting go of the power of money supply. That's a quite a big ask um, if you're a superpower. And um, so we'll see. And, you know, now, I mean, the last what since I'm not, you know, of course, I think that sanctions against Russia and, you know, you know, the Ukrainian war just to get really topical. I understand where the U.S. government's coming from, trying to impose sanctions and then the EU and stuff like that. But I mean, weaponizing the money supply is kind of like a pretty aggressive thing to be doing. And you know, I think crypto kind of does solve some of the stuff um, because it sort of like makes it more neutral. And it's like money is kind of a neutral thing. I don't know that the governments around the world should be, in my you know, I guess that some people would probably say hyperbolic language, sort of weaponizing it for purposes of their own agenda. Um, I mean, they wouldn't say that. They would say, oh, we're, we're good. Uh, it's like, oh, okay, well, it's fine if you're the good guy. Okay. It's, it's, it's okay. It's going to be a fascist because you're right. <laughs> it's like, so it's a little, I don't know. I'm really getting way off of or over my pay grade. But if you want to ask me, that's my answer, which is regulation risk. 
No, I wanted your answer for sure. It was perfect. Um, well, thank you so much for being on, Tom. I really appreciate it. I'm kind of excited to see how all of this unfolds and see if your uh, your projections are right here. I feel like you're kind of right on the mark, but um, wouldn't have had you on, I guess. But um, Thank you so much again. Thank you to everyone for listening as well. We will be back next week with another episode. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency.